0: The whole history of our wars, they're unprovoked. That is, the United States isn't being attacked, it's attacking. Welcome, from Alpha, from Alpha to Omega to Omega.
1: Hello, and welcome to the 50th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today, Saturday, the 28th of June... 2014 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. This week's show is brought to you by the very generous Nancy L. Thanking you Nancy. You too can sponsor the show by clicking on that dare Donate button on the podcast website. This week I'm delighted to welcome back the economist, economic historian and extremely prolific author Professor Michael Perelman, of California State University Chico. We talk about the current book he's working on, The Matrix, an exploratory political economy of the dangerous paradoxical interactions between war, the economy, and economic ideology. At least that's the current title, he tells me. We discuss unintended consequences and the difficulty of decision making in complex situations, the arrogance of those in positions of power. Vietnam, heavyweight boxing, and the little talked about dark side to Winston Churchill. So, Michael, you're working on a new book. What is the working title and what is it all about?
0: Well, the working title has been shifting from day to day. It now stands as the matrix, an exploratory political economy of the dangerous paradoxical interactions between war, the economy, and economic ideology. I treat war, the economy, and economic ideology as if they were pillars on which this thing is constructed. So pillars that sit on top of the natural world, but contaminated with all of this unintended consequences. And you have these people there that are making decisions with no clue about how complex they are and what can come of it and how A small decision that makes sense today can cause terrible problems. So my favorite example was the story of a young 24 year old militia officer in Virginia in 1757, I believe. And he's sent to go off to near Pittsburgh from Virginia to tell the French, who also claimed the same territory, that they should get the hell out of there. Before he gets to the French, The French have already dispatched some Canadians to come down and tell the young officer and his contingent that they should get the hell out of there. The young officer has a troop of Native Americans with him who are to help him move from one place to another. And the leader of the Native Americans was also the half chief of the Seneca, who was losing influence with the tribe and he wanted to build up his credibility. And so what he did was he convinced this young officer to let him or join in killing some of these French people. In doing so, the Native Americans know that the French are going to come and punish them. They run away as quickly as possible. The French come down and they capture this young, really inexperienced military officer in the militia. He's not even trained as a military officer. The French have let him go, but they has to sign a paper. He doesn't know French. He signs the paper. Part of the paper is he confesses to murdering these young Canadian people. Now, that simple event sets off the French and Indian Wars in the United States, which in turn set off the Seven Years' War, which turns out to be the First World War and his people are fighting in India, they're fighting in the Caribbean, they're fighting in South America, they're fighting in North America, and they're fighting all over Europe. The young officer later becomes the first president of the United States, George Washington. And when he leaves in his farewell address, maybe ironically, he says, beware of foreign entanglements." That's the kind of stories that are in there. But the stories are all there with the intention of making a point. And the point is that these people act as if they know what they're doing. And there's a beautiful part of the book from Carlyle, who's writing about Robespierre. In effect, what he says that the guy might have been okay and he might have had good things in mind. But what happens is it's not that the man has the power, that the power takes over the man. And that's the problem. From the economic ideology side, you have people who are again Uh, not paying any attention to the truth. They're trying to create a certain type of world they want to see. And it's a very destructive world, as you see from all the turmoil and austerity around the world today. And they don't have a clue about what's going on. Were you influenced by complexity theory? I wouldn't say I was interested by complexity theory as such, but the idea of complexity, yes. And the idea of excessive self-confidence and arrogance, And it usually has to do with a top-down arrangement in which some people think that they can make all of the decisions for others. And when they don't think they can make the decisions directly, what they do is they manipulate things so that your Tony and our George could convince the American people that they were threatened by nuclear weapons coming out of Iraq. Again, the book is, in a sense, a call for something like the precautionary principle to be operative rather than having small groups of people in authority making decisions for the rest.
1: What is this precautionary principle?
0: Well, that before you go off and do something, you have to make the case that it's not going to do any harm. Rather than what we do, say, with the chemicals or light, it's responsibility to the critics to come and say, we can prove that it's going to do harm. The precautionary principle says, no, no, it's your responsibility to prove that it will not do harm. So it's where you put the burden of proof.
1: You mentioned in the book the difficulty of understanding, say, the temporal causality of making decisions. Are there theories in economic theory about this?
0: Well, there were there were theories about it. They were marginal in terms of economics. You had, I use the example of Frank Knight in the book, who talked about our lack of knowledge in making decisions which is interesting since he was a professor at the University of Chicago. Uh, in terms of Marx, he gets into this very nicely with some quick references he made. and I don't have this in the book yet. One, he said, all oh, economics reduces itself to the economics of time. But more than that, he talked about something called the mortal leap. He said when business makes an investment, it's putting money down, whether it's borrowed money or your own money, and that a long time passes, or at least some time passes, before that value from your production will be realized. And it's a mortal leap. You don't know. You're going into uncertainty. Keynes also emphasizes the uncertainty of the economy. While economics in general, their idea is that business manages somehow to allocate resources efficiently. And the thought that anybody else could look at it from the outside and make a better decision or help to regulate that decision is Ridiculous because markets are efficient. And Keynes is looking at the Depression and seeing that markets don't necessarily create efficiency. Now, it's important to keep in mind that Keynes and Frank Knight are writing after World War I. And that period is very, very important because if you go back to the 1890s, there was an almost certainty in all European cultures that we finally figured out how to do things. In the United States, it was a progressive era. And if you have people doing science and thinking about things and studying things, we can make the right decision. Rationality is going to make the world a better place. And after World War I, they saw that people who were very, very rational, making these detailed war plans and the like, this rationality didn't show up at all. It's interesting because then each of these countries has this two things. They have the treaties, which obligate them to fight, to come to the aid of any of their allies. And then they have these war plans. And the war plans remind me of these algorithms that they're using for the stock market now. Each country has to respond because there's this belief if you're the second one to respond, then you're going to lose a real serious advantage. So countries start to mobilize, and if one country mobilizes, the other one mobilizes. And then you think, well, if they're mobilizing then they're going to attack. Therefore, I have to attack quicker. And you come to war and fast. And the book I just read yesterday is saying that, you know, if Austria had just gone down, whacked Serbia for the assassination, gone out, nothing would happen beyond that. But they didn't want to go to war alone, and they want Germany to come and help them. And that causes devastation everywhere. Part of it was that the tensions are built up, again, between the economy and war, because you had these fabulous advances in technology in the late 19th century, probably faster than ever before. I call it the first industrial revolution, first real industrial revolution, because people were learning to harness fossil fuel like never before. And with the fossil fuel, they're able to produce much, much more than they ever could before. So yeah. you have overproduction everywhere. Everyone's trying to get more markets. So you have this rush to colonialism, and you have these countries trampling on each other's interests. So, for example, the US is upset that the Japanese are developing in Asia, and that becomes, of course, a big cause in the Second World War. All these hostilities, in effect, building up because of these other pressures. And then you have this lock in with the treaties and the war plans, and it's almost like watching a train wreck. So after the war, you have a great emphasis on irrationality. It's no accident that Freud is writing after World War I, emphasizing irrationality. Keynes is writing after World War I, emphasizing irrationality. So here you have the economics profession. It's based wholly in terms of rationality. Veblen has a line where he talks about economists assume that people are lightning quick, hedonistic calculators of pleasure and pain, That is, we have these computers in our heads and everybody knows how to make the right decision. And the right decision is also to go down to the consumers. That is, consumers aren't influenced by advertising except by virtue of the information that the advertising conveys, not by the emotion, not by the music, not by the pretty women with scanty clothing. That people are all based on rationality. So it continues with this idea of the 1890s, but their rationality was supposed to be coming from a larger group, from specialists and experts, and the rationality today is the rationality of the individual. Bateman is a very, very interesting type of person on every level, and absolutely brilliant. He came from a family of craftsmen. His father was a craftsman. The children all went to college. His one brother was a very famous mathematician, professor of mathematics at Johns Hopkins, And he was very skeptical about class authority, very questioning about class authority. He says, football is to sport what bullfighting is to animal husbandry. So he's very skeptical and cynical about all of the things that people held up highly. But he also had a very, very interesting and deep understanding of how American business works. He saw it as being composed of large parts of swindle, large parts of stupidity, large parts of greed. And he wanted power to be given to the working man who knew how to do things, who had skills of craft, rather than to allow these robber barons to rule the world, which they were doing and continue to do.
1: So how has economic theory then integrated findings from, say, complexity or chaos theory?
0: Well, economic theory, first of all, there has been a long history, at least in the United States, of ridding economics departments of unconventional economists. So it becomes a very homogeneous type of study in which anybody that sets a foot off the reservation risks being exiled forever and ever. And secondly, the book is going to go into a great deal of detail about the interaction between economists and war. From the very beginning, economists are always, always, always involved in questions of war. How do you pay for the war? William Petty began uh, something like the gross domestic product estimates, and he was looking at it in terms of the capacity of England to fight against France. That is, it wasn't just pure economics. You find, uh, even when you get to the modern day, economists are very, very involved in wars. In the Second World War, economists were predominant in deciding, they were using their models to figure out where bombs would be dropped. Simon Kuznets was doing studies estimating how much the military could take away from the domestic economy without collapsing the domestic economy. And... John Kenneth Galbraith says that generals in Washington would tell him that Kuznets was worth two divisions of soldiers. So economists have always been involved in wars. And the war uh, research comes into play in their economics. The most absurd example would be efficient market theory. And that comes by way of a man named John Muth. And John Muth was working on these. Mechanisms, servo mechanisms, to help people in airplanes be able to adjust the flight of their, their guns to the flight of the opposing pilots. They use something called a Kalman filter, which helps them to anticipate statistically what the next move will be. And from there, Moose says, well, you see, that's what markets would do. They'd be able to anticipate like that. And that theory turns out to be key in most of the economic dialogue regarding financial deregulation. Another interesting connection with war is military spending. So in the United States, Keynes was regarded as a dangerous socialist, and American economists were very, very Keynesian. But they couldn't promote Keynesian spending, a lot of government spending, and their interpretation of Keynes was very, very primitive and superficial. Talking about Keynes is merely about government spending to get the economy up. It was much more sophisticated than that. In fact, Keynes was at a breakfast in Washington, and he goes home and he tells his wife later, I was the only non-Keynesian in the room. So these people want to use government spending to keep the economy up, to keep unemployment down. And this gives rise to what became called military Keynesianism. That is, they could become patriotic by saying, spend more, spend more on military, And they could still be doing work of keeping the economy up. This was largely in the Democratic Party. So that when Eisenhower left office and he talked about beware of the military-industrial complex, he was talking about the Democrats who were running against the Republicans, arguing that the Republicans under Eisenhower had let the Soviet Union develop these missiles, and they had more missiles than we did. So there was a missile gap, and we need more spending for missiles. And Eisenhower knew that was nonsense because they weren't doing the counting right. They were not looking at the number of warheads on the missiles. They were just counting the missiles. So here again, you have the relationship between war and the economy. Then, too, what happens is after the war, the Rand Corporation, this was a I think, and almost every American Nobel Prize winning economist has spent time, often lots of time, working at the Rand Corporation. And many of the important theorems that were developed in the 50s and early 60s came out of the Rand Corporation for very, very different purposes. For example, there's one interesting theorem by Kenneth Arrow. And the idea is that you cannot create what he called a social welfare function where you can decide what's best for the government to do because different people have different mixes of preferences, and you're not going to be able to add them all up. In fact, what his theorem was, it was about something very, very different. He was saying that the Soviets had an advantage of us because they did not have a democracy, and it was too complex to come to a decision in the United States, whereas in the Soviet Union, they could make a decision very, very easily, and everybody would comply because we were a democracy, and they were a dictatorship.
2: Старливцы красотных, а на мире по работнику, рабочие работники, полхозники и полхозники, работники интеллигентного труда, братья и сестры тыму наших страдов. Ребенно подпадчики под типа по немецких родной. Наши славные партизаны,
1: партизанки, окружающие ты наших страны. И вот с кем поздравляю вас. How did this military Keynesianism work with the Vietnam War?
0: The question of Vietnam is very interesting. There are all sorts of reasons why we would go to war with Vietnam. One reason that Eisenhower gave, he talked about the the tungsten and the various resources that they had. But what appears to have been the problem with Vietnam, the best one I can think of, is that Vietnam was a natural trading partner for Japan. But China was an even more natural trading partner for Japan. And the thought of China and Japan coming together as allies was very threatening to U.S. interests in Asia. And Asia becomes very important because that is where people are forever looking for an outlet of our overproduction of goods, our overaccumulation of capital. Asia, Asia, Asia. And we see it today in all the talk about China. So the idea was to create an alternative to Chinese integration with Southeast Asian integration. Well, the Vietnam War was very, also very important for economists, especially because many of the advisors during the Vietnam War were economists. Rostow was considered to be a very, very important development economist. He was also a leading theoretician about carrying out the war. So yeah, economists were very, very, very important during the war. And in fact, The prestige of economists was so high that by the time Jimmy Carter became president, I forget the exact number, but I think five or six cabinet members were Ph.D. economists. And they were very important in promoting military spending. They were very important in developing war plans. And the person that you can think of uh, most easily would be Daniel Osmond. So he was a very important economist in his own right.
1: What were the unintended consequences of this military and Keynesianism?
0: Well, military Keynesianism meant that by giving the military more money, you gave more influence to the military-industrial complex, which caused more spending on the military, which eroded the domestic economy. So it becomes very, very difficult to have a healthy U.S. economy when you have so much spending on the military. We don't even know how much spending the military does. The Pentagon has some of the budget, but the rest of it is all over the place. Atomic bombs are done by the Energy Department. Biological weapons were done by the Department of Agriculture. So in each of these departments, they have part of this black budget, which goes to the military, which isn't even counted as military spending. Once you have the military spending, then the military companies give money to the congressmen and senators, and then they get even more influence.
1: It's a good way of integrating the military model into all these different areas of the economy.
0: When we had the sequestration, part of it was there were supposed to be Defense Department cuts. And the Republicans were just delighted with this sequestration, but they did not want the cuts in the military. And while the Republicans were saying that Obama's stimulus program will not create one single job, eliminating military spending will cut jobs. So presumably spending on the military creates jobs, other kinds of spending doesn't create jobs. And then you get spending on something like the F-24. The F-24 is a plane that serves no purposes, That is, has nothing to do with the kind of warfare we're involved in today. It's designed to be able to do fighting with Soviet jets, or maybe Chinese jets of the future. But the planes, which cost billion dollars apiece, The program will cost several trillion dollars when it's complete. The military isn't in favor of it. They see it as a waste. But the military businesses, Lockheed Martin, which makes these things, is so powerful that you cannot cut the program. Then what they do is to beef up military spending, they will sell the same equipment to other countries. Then the military will go to the government and say, we need more modern equipment because Other people all over the world have this equipment.
1: So it's quite a racket.
0: Yes, it's worse than erratic because the consequences are that you cut all of the social safety net and at the same time you cut taxes for the very rich. How
1: was the war culture or the imperial culture in the US? uh, What are the origins of it and how did it get put into place?
0: Well, the first imperial idea was that When the pilgrims came over, they took a line from the Bible, be fruitful and multiply, and the idea was that the Native Americans did not use their land as efficiently. This comes from John Locke. They didn't use their land as efficiently as the colonists. Therefore, it's God's wish that we give the land to those who use it most productively. That starts the ball rolling. And then the wars continue to ramp up and up so that Military historian John Keegan gave a list of American cities just with the name "Fort" to give an idea to how deeply ingrained military is in American culture. Then the other, there's another thing that has to do with imperialism, and that is slavery. Slavery is really important because for the United States, maintaining the slave culture was almost the highest priority that you, that you can imagine. So the War of 1812, one of the serious causes, we we learn in our textbooks, one of the serious causes was that the British Navy was impressing American seamen to be part of the British Navy. What really made the Americans angry was that the British in Canada were giving refuge to slaves. Similarly, in the Revolutionary War, one of the things that Thomas Jefferson wrote about in the Declaration of Independence, I don't remember the exact wording, but he's talking about King George Hath raised tumult in our society. That was the British were trying to reduce slavery in the country. And that was a big problem. So we fought that war. When you go on to the other wars, another question is whether a war, say, as we fought in Mexico, whether it was going to bring in slave states or free states. So part of the question about war is what you do is to see what that's going to do, the balance between slaveholding and non-slaveholding states. Now, when we get to the period you're talking about, when we get to serious imperialism, it starts with the Spanish-American War. And the Spanish-American War was largely the project of Theodore Roosevelt and Henry Cabot Lodge. And both of them had a concern with the urbanization of America, which meant the strong, hardy farm boys were becoming the minority and Weak, pallid, urban kids were becoming the new population. So they were totally infatuated with the idea of making a strong culture. And here they're very influenced by the muscular Christianity that began over in Britain. They're infatuated with this idea of muscular Christianity, which incidentally identified closely with chivalry. They used the same kind of crusading logic that what they were going to do was to make life better for everybody to help the weak. Roosevelt was a weak, sickly kid, and he made his life's goal to be tough. There's one story where he was lost out in the Dakotas at one point and managed to walk back for something like nine days in the cold without adequate clothing. So he was was pretty tough. So he was a low-level person. He had been in charge of police in New York City, And then some of the Republicans really liked him, and they pressured to get him to be an undersecretary of the Navy, which is not a very powerful position. And he used that position to really lobby in favor of this war with Spain. And then he resigned his position to go and fight, and he was there for a while, and he used that to build up his reputation and use that to become president of the United States. The president, McKinley, who was now overseeing the real thrust of American imperialism? That is, before that, we fought, but we weren't fighting off the continental shelf. That is, we take over Native American land, we take over Mexican land, but we never went outside the United States continental shelf. And McKinley actually get, breaks down in tears when faced with the necessity of war. Roosevelt is the primary promoter of the war, and he's very successful and very popular for it.
1: Eugenics was popular about this time as well.
0: That was part of muscular Christianity. Muscular Christianity was the idea that God gave us our bodies and we have to become strong, we have to use them, and we have to get rid of the weak, and therefore we'll be able to justify the American vision just as the British used rugby to justify the British vision. Our football was first a form of rugby, and then to make the sport more nationalistic, The rules were changed, and the rules were changed in such a way as to make it different from rugby and make it specifically American. And then football becomes extremely important in developing this sort of military mentality, which is so important for the muscular Christians, because it's our destiny to go out and make the world good. The way you make the world good is you conquer those peoples that you consider to be backward or weak or anything else.
1: In what sense does it play the role of the bread and the circus in, in Roman times? Very
0: much so. Football becomes extremely important. And the universities are dedicated to football. And the few people that are questioning that we should put such a high priority on football, uh, they are made to feel quite a bit of heat. Because football was American. America is patriotic. And if football patriotic, if you don't like football, you're unpatriotic. It's very, very simple. It was a way of expressing our dominance, and it was our God-given role to be dominant. When I was a kid, the Army-Navy football game was a big deal, and people would root for the Army or root for the Navy. But it was always to show how strong we are, and that strength was military strength. And when they talked about football, they took terminology from the military to describe what it was that they were doing. Now, the original football was very, very rough game, much rougher than it is even today. And so what you do when you kick the ball off, someone from the other team receives it and tries to run it back. What they did at the time is they had a formation called a flying wedge. And what you would do is you would take your whole team, use it to create a wedge, and use that wedge to be able to leverage the force of all 11 bodies running at this one individual. And people were dying. Many people were crippled from this. Roosevelt was worried he was present by this time, and he was worried that the football was damaging our young soldiers. And so he calls a conference in the White House, a pretty high-priority conference to be called in the White House, in which he helps to rewrite the rules of football so it's not quite so damaging. One of my favorite examples in the book is a man named Frederick Remington, who was one of the people that was sent down to make excuses for the war in the Philippines. Before that, he was a football player on Colombia, and he was so serious, what he would do before a game is he would go to a slaughtering house and rub his whole body with blood. And now he's considered one of the great American painters of the time.
1: It was quite an upper-class white game at the time.
0: Yes, it was. Eugenics was the same thing. It was trying to make very, very strong American culture. And if you want a strong American culture, then you don't want weak Americans. And it's also a class thing because there was an assumption that the people who'd be strong would be the upper class, that would be able to go to places like Harvard, Yale, and play football. And working class people would be regarded as fairly weak, regardless of their physical capacity. Eugenics, football, imperialism, it all goes together. And at the time, eugenics was considered to be a very popular thing. Keynes himself was head of the eugenics society in in Britain. It was not considered something for some sort of right-wing wing knights. It was considered very respectable and scientific. Keynes was head of the Eugenic Society. Yes. Now, I don't know whether it was a title that was just given to him because he was gave him some money. Or whether it was something that meant a lot to him, we do know that he was a snob in many ways, so eugenics wouldn't be that far from what you might expect. I have trouble envisioning him supporting the cruelty associated with the eugenics movement, in which people were mutilated in order to further the goals of eugenics.
1: If we look to the design of games like rugby or American Footballer, they seem to have a certain kind of a class orientation in themselves that you have in rugby. You've got an out half who dictates the game like a quarterback, and then you've got a group of strong kind of grunt men forwards, and then you've got the backs who are running backs who finish off and look fancy. There seems to be a kind of stratification of the classes within the structure of the game itself. Was that something that was thought of?
0: I think the stratification goes on a deeper level than that. The coach of the football team was like manager of a large corporation or a business. The players were expected to take orders and be very, very obedient and do whatever is asked of them. So in a sense, it was a reification of labor management or labor capital relationships. So the players were, on the one hand, up-and-coming people who may be able to play an important part in the military and capital, but on the other hand, until they have left football, they are the PONs who are expected to go out and take orders. They were not expected to use individual initiative. <music>
2: Here come the Derby Council 15 following the All Blacks out onto the pitch. Uh, there at the, uh, in the centre of the picture, you can see Dawn Pale 4, Ponson Joe, one of the fastest wingers we must have seen in England this season. On the left hand side of the picture, the Lord Mayor has been running such wonderful possession for uh, Derby Council in the lines out. And it's the uh, All Blacks to kick off, uh, Wilson to kick off. Oh, and I can see there the chairman of the Byways and Highways Committee, who's obviously recovered from that very nasty blow he got in that loose ball at the first half. And uh, Wilson kicks off, and it's the Town Talks taking the ball beautifully there. The All Blacks are running very fast. There, and- and the whistle has gone. I'm not quite sure what happened there. I couldn't see. But there's a scrum down. I think it's an All Blacks ball. they were up on them very fast. Obviously, they're going to try very hard in this half to wipe out this five-point deficit. Derby Council, eight points and three up. And Derby Council have got the ball against the head. Uh, there is the Barra Sevier. The scrum half is out. of the, chairway of the hi- uh, chairman of the Highway and Byway Committee. Uh, who's kicked for turns. The line out. And it's into the line out. And the mayor has got the ball again to the Barra Sevier. He's left out. The medical officer of health.
1: This must have been a very disappointing result for
2: the old lads. Well, they've had very bad luck on the tour so far. In fact, they missed four very
1: easy kicks against the Exeter Amateur Operatic Society, which must have cost them a match. And then, of course, there was that crippling defeat at the hands of the Derry and Toy Department. So, I don't think they could really be fancying their chances against the London Pools on Saturday.
2: And what about China?
1: Well, whether Mao Zedong is alive or not, Lin
2: Piao has a stranglehold on the Central Committee, which Lin Xiaoqi can't break. So it remains
1: to be seen whether Chu enlai lai can really get his finger out and get going in the second half. Around that time, we also had the emergence of the great black boxers at the time, like Jack Johnson. What impact did this have on the culture at the time?
0: Oh, that was very scary because strong meant big white. It didn't mean big black because the whole ethos of slavery was that blacks are inferior. If they're inferior, how can they beat up a good white guy? So Johnson considered to be a real threat and people were very, very concerned that it might undermine the whole ethos of the country. And there was a big search all over the country looking for someone called the great white hope. One of my friends... Great uncles was someone who was looked at for this. It's a great white hope. Someone that can beat up that black guy. And that became a, a, a great, great concern to the United States because it undermines that whole belief of strong, white, upper class people are the ones who are designated by God to rule the world.
1: I'm quite interested in boxing myself, but I remember reading maybe at the time of Mike Tyson and some of these guys fighting that it was still common in the boxing magazines for them to openly talk about the great white hope.
0: Yeah, I think there was an embarrassment. Even in the United States, I'm guessing 15, 20 years ago, uh, one of the commentators was trying to denigrate blacks in football. The majority of the players, I don't know what the ratio is, but I suspect a high majority of the players are black. And he explained what was happening. He says the blacks have very strong hamstring muscles, so they have this genetic disposition. But of course, that kind of genetic disposition to be able to play football was what the muscular Christians would say is the side of thing that makes you into a natural leader. But they use that to denigrate the blacks to say, well, they're not really competing fairly. They have these big
1: hamstring muscles. In the book, the copy of the book you're working on, you sent me, you mentioned how Jack Johnson was banned by Churchill fighting in England. At the moment, we've got the D-Day celebrations here in in London going on, and we hear all this amazing stuff about Churchill, but we don't hear about his dark aspects.
0: Oh, yes, it's very dark. It's very dark.
1: Why did he ban Jack Johnson from fighting?
0: Because he's black. He's black. If you could have filled them with white paint, you would have looked at them very differently. But, I mean, Churchill's the guy that told Hindus and, and Muslims that they had to vote for people of their own religion, and that's what led to the split between Pakistan and India, created by this wonderful man, Churchill.
3: Well, here's a little lesson history that they don't teach in schools in England. But we know from the declassified documents, Britain had been, been the world-dominant power, but by the time of the First World War, it was weakened by the war. Air power was just coming along at that time. So the idea was to use air power to attack civilians. Uh, they figured that would be a good way to uh, reduce the costs of uh, crushing the barbarians. Churchill, who was then a colonial secretary, uh, didn't think that was enough. He got a request from um, the RAF office in Cairo, asking him uh, for permission, I'm quoting it now, to use poison gas uh, against recalcitrant Arabs. The recalcitrant Arabs they were talking about happened to be Kurds and Afghans, not Arabs, but you know, by racist standards, anybody you want to kill is an Arab. The poison gas was the ultimate atrocity at that time. Kind of worst thing you could imagine. This was circulated around the British Empire, the India office was resistant, they said if you use poison gas against Kurds and Afghans it's going to cause us problems in India, which we're already plenty of problems. There will be uprisings and people will be furious and so on. I'm not going to mind in England, of course, but in uh, India they might. Churchill was outraged by this. But he said, I cannot understand this squeamishness about the use of poison gas against uncivilized tribes will cause a lively terror it will save British lives so we have to use every means that science permits us. okay uh, So that's the way you deal with Kurds and Afghans when you're the British. So getting back to the.
1: US imperialism, tell us a bit about the US role in the Philippines.
0: Philippines become important because another high priority for the United States, was to be able to compete with France and England, and to a lesser extent with Germany, that had toeholds in China. And already, right after the Revolutionary War, Alexander Hamilton is talking about how important it will be to be trading with China. In the Philippines, they're located 400 miles from China, which would make it very, very easy to have a base to be able to operate efficiently in China. Efficiently means to be able to push other people around. So we get this military operation in the Philippines and it was to free the Philippines just as it was to free the Cubans and the others from Spanish tyranny. The Spanish had no interest in fighting the U.S. and the Philippines. They didn't want to lose anything. They knew they couldn't beat the Americans. And so they arrange a mock battle and they surrender. So they do this mock battle and then the Americans get rid of the Philippine government, the indigenous Philippine government a big revolution starts, And this becomes important because it's the beginning of Edward Snowden. It's the beginning of Edward Snowden because of the fact that they have this doctor who's in the military and somehow they give him the responsibility for keeping track of what's going on. And he is absolutely methodical, even though the technology that they had at the time was very, very primitive. And from that, he had information about everybody with any power in the Philippines. So if you're not doing what he wants, he can go to your, Trenton, to go to your wife and tell you that you're doing something bad, or he can talk about some graft that you've been involved in. So everybody would eventually go down. But before they did that, everybody in power, the indigenous people are fighting very, very, very hard. And it's very costly in terms of Philippine lives, but also in terms of American lives. That's where we started getting involved with waterboarding, except we did something much worse than waterboarding. We poured the water into people's bodies until they inflated, which was very dangerous. And if that wasn't dangerous enough, then you would kick the guy, which would explode the organs and they'd be dead. So it was brutal, but we learned these techniques. This guy, Van Diemen, comes back to the United States and he teaches J. Edgar Hoover how you keep tracks of people. He goes to Hollywood and helps set up the Hollywood blacklist of the communists who are making films. Very, very powerful man. He starts, these technologies that he developed become very, very important because of the First World War. The First World War was very unpopular. And to make sure that the First World War would get going, Wilson started developing the most. Extensive propaganda system that had ever been developed. He starts arresting Germans, anyone who said anything. This is where the Espionage Act that Obama uses comes. He's arresting everybody who speaks against the war, even questions the war. It's very fascistic what he did. And this was a man who came to office promising to keep us out of war. But it looks like he intended to get us in the war, but wanted to wait until the major powers were exhausted and the U.S. could come in and be taken Consequences over and above the millions of Vietnamese who've been hurt and continue to be hurt by the toxic remnants of the war, the U.S. also suffered a great deal of self inflicted damage. Now, if you remember from World War II to the late 60s, it was called the Golden Age. It was called the Golden Age because the economy performed better than it ever had before. Wages were going up, inequality was going down, the economy was growing. And by the end of the Vietnam War period, it starts slowing down. As it slows down, profits start to fall. That starts a panic. The right wing organizes. Nixon is elected. That opens the door to neoliberalism. Of course, because the protests are still going on, Nixon backs down, not on the war, but in in the sense of creating occupational health and safety administration, clean air, clean water, et cetera, et cetera. So at the same time, Nixon's doing a lot of conservative things. He's also giving a lot of things to liberal causes in terms of these policies. So Nixon, although he's very conservative, is seen as almost a socialist, and the right wing organizes harder in order to bring in, after the brief Carter administration, a real conservative, Ronald Reagan. So that opens up neoliberalism, and you get it, and we get it, because of this economic malfunction, which happened because somebody threw a shoe into the gears of a pretty well-functioning economy in the late 60s. Even before then, to cover up some of the costs of the war, Johnson had to do some things that were very destructive. For example, one of the things he did was to take the two agencies that supported the housing market with insurance for housing loans. And he made it into a private operation to hide the effect of the war on the budget. Also, he took social security taxes, which were supposed to go right into social security and stay there. He took social security taxes into the government budget, which reduced the budget deficit and what he offered Social Security was a promise to pay in the future. So what that meant was that people had paid for Social Security already, and now there is a lot of resistance about having to make the government pay off the money it owes for Social Security, also caused by the Vietnam War. Another neoliberal project was a desire to privatize the financial markets. So what happens is during the war, a huge balance of payments deficit. Now, before the war ended, you had the Bretton Woods Agreement. And part of the Bretton Woods agreements was that we would be on sort of a substitute gold standard. The U.S. would keep a certain amount of currency backed by gold, 25%. The U.S. would offer a window so that people could return their dollars for gold at $35 an ounce. And the balance of payments deficit meant that people were claiming gold. And at one point, France sends a military ship over to collect a huge amount of gold. And by this time, Nixon's president, and he goes off the gold standard. Now, Milton Friedman had been arguing, go off that type of gold standard because we want international markets and currencies. And his friend, Leo Millamed, who owns the Chicago Board and Trade, he wants to be able to have financial futures in currencies. So all these pressures come up. We drop any relationship of the dollar to gold, the whole international finance system becomes destabilized, you have more financial crises around the world, all of this is a cost indirectly of the Vietnam War. Vietnam also had a serious effect on economic theory because as the economy doesn't work well because of Vietnam, this is taken to be a discrediting of Keynesian theory and therefore. Milton Friedman and monetarism are in the saddle. So the costs of Vietnam have been enormous over and above the tragic cost to the Vietnamese. This interrelationship between war, the economy, and economic ideology, to me, is a very, very important problem because these are three basic issues in our lives, and they're all operating in a very dysfunctional fashion and represent a threat not just to our own welfare, but to our existence.
1: Very much for coming on the show today, Professor Perelman
0: Well, thank you very much. It's been a privilege. Absolutely. <laughs>
1: On this episode, you heard the theme tune The Order of the Pharaonic Gestures, by Sunra and his orchestra and Stalin giving a speech to the backdrop of Zorksky's Pictures at an Exhibition. You also heard Monty Python commentating on the rugby match between Derby Council and New Zealand to the tune of The Archers and Noam Chomsky giving us the lowdown on Churchill accompanied by Elgar's Land of Hope and Glory. The Chemical Buddhas could also be heard getting somewhat out of control. And you are now listening to Edwin Starr with War. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega.
2: Absolutely, listen to me.
0: make